New Testament believers, we are too often tempted to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant to us. However, today on IBC Topics, we discussed that issue along with others in an interview we conducted with Dr. Doug Bookman. Hello and welcome again to IBC Topics, an audio discussion ministry from Emmanuel Bible Church. On March 25th, Good Friday of 2005, Pastor Nam Park and Pastor Gary Takahashi of IBC conducted an interview with Dr. Doug Bookman regarding the Old Testament. And with that, let's go straight to the interview. We're here with Dr. Doug Bookman, and we're glad to have him. Uh, he's a, a regular and a friend to our church, and he always seems to have a, a great deal of insight to the Word of God. So, Dr. Bookman, we're glad to have you. Thank you so much. Good to be with you once again. Well, just to get things going, could we ask you, Doug, just to share with us maybe your personal testimony? Yeah, I was born into a, a wonderful Christian family, and they were a part of a really, really strong church, and that church became the center of our family. My folks had gotten saved not too long before we were born, so we kind of grew up together in some ways in the Lord, but uh, my dad was the uh, finest man I ever knew and the strongest Christian I ever knew, and, and he uh, really, really was committed to the local church. And uh, we, I grew up in uh, Rockford, Illinois, good, strong Baptist church there, First Baptist Church. And uh, the Lord just laid it on my heart uh, in high school that uh, it doesn't make sense to give your life. I, I was really anxious just to give my life to the Word of God, whatever that might be, and went off to Bible college and seminary and then got involved in, in teaching and, and have uh, been in the classroom most of my life. And then... Uh, I came to the Lord as a child, as a young boy, and uh, and was baptized at the age of about 10. So all of my life, I've uh, been surrounded by uh, good, strong Christian influences. You mentioned that you had grown up in a Baptist church. Um, I'm here with one of our pastors here, Gary Takahashi, myself. And even before I was a believer, our background was a, a Baptist church. And there's something about Baptists. And, uh, and and there's an entire subculture of Christianity that I think only individuals that have been involved in the Baptist church appreciate. That's me. So That's me. <laughs> we, could, we could all say an amen to that, I That's guess. That's right. Well, how did you, um, we know you specifically for your knowledge of the Old Testament and your knowledge of the New Testament, but how did you get particularly interested in uh, in getting deeper in studying the Scriptures? Well, you know, when I was... Uh, just starting out as a teacher, I was at a little school in Minnesota. It was a Baptist school. It was a backwater school. And uh, it was the school which I had attended for my undergrad work. And it was the sort of school where they absolutely uh, worked you, you know, like a slave. And we would teach 16 or 18 units, no overlaps, and, uh, you know, all new preps and so on. And I look back on it now, and it's one of those things which you, you, you wouldn't trade for anything you wouldn't do again for a million dollars, you know. But <laughs> because of that, there were so many areas of theology and Bible and, and biblical history and so on that I had to teach. You know, you never learn as well as when you are preparing to teach. And so, uh, and, and I just developed uh, a passion for the Old Testament, and, and as time went by, I became more and more impressed with the degree to which our ability to understand the New Testament is so dependent upon an understanding of the old, and uh, that's much misunderstood and overlooked, I think. 
But I was just, God in his sweet providence just put me in a place where I could really focus in. I, you know, I, was, I tell lay folk all the time when they come and say, you know, it seems like you know so much about the Bible. And I say, well, you know, I, I get paid to do what you have to do in your spare time, you know. And God's really been good about that. So, And I had some excellent, excellent teachers, especially in my uh, master's and THM work and then in my Ph.D. work. It was really challenging and 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 get you excited about uh about about learning so uh and then and then like i say as time went by i in 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 1981 for the first time i went to israel and uh my mom and dad my mom's here this evening interestingly enough but they went along with us and uh i just really really was impressed with the importance of that and as time went by we were able to develop a relationship with the school over there and then start our own campus over there and and because there's a campus over there that I've, I was part of and getting it off the ground, they like me, and so I can still go over and uh, and uh, you know they let me work with them and so on. So I I'm in a position where I can lead trips and so on. So it's just been uh, God's providence has really been sweet that way. And you're still involved with um, doing tours of Israel. Yeah, and in two two about three weeks we're going to take the choir. You know the college choir goes once every four years and and. Uh, there's another college I'm working with that I'm supposed to take them next June, and I was with a church up in Minneapolis just last week, and they want me to take them in 2007. So if I can get over there once a year and lead a group, you know, I'm... you got to take us, too. Yeah, yeah, well, let's do it. We've talked about it, so I'd love to do it. Well, how often have you gone? Well, it's been so strange with me because I've never had an official position that gets me there. It's just... I'm with somebody, you know, and they say, let's do it, and we can put it together and so on, because I have access over there to IBEX and so on, the campus over there. So I, I for a while, I was going over a couple of times a year, but it's usually once a year I'm able to get over. It's And it's yeah, I always say it's God's perfect blackboard. I mean, you want to do some teaching, you know, <laughs> to go over there and to actually walk around the places and so on. You know, it's fantastic. So, Doug, um, you are, of course, uh, in our minds, uh, the Old Testament scholar. Uh, I think Gary and I were, were talking about last time you were here that it seems like every time you come and you share anything, there's stuff that, and Gary and myself, we're, we don't consider ourselves necessarily scholars in anything, but we have had quite a deal of uh, seminary training. Gary even went to a Bible college, so Gary probably knows more than I do. And when we add up everything, we're still impressed at the fact that you always have something new to, to teach us. And that in itself is uh, quite an impression that you leave upon us every time. Um, why don't we get to uh, one of the main things that we'd like to ask of you, and that's um, what part does the Old Testament play for today's Christian, for New Testament believers today? Well, I think it's uh, much more of a part than is generally appreciated, as you, as, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, there are several ways, I think, that the Bible enjoins upon us an understanding of the Old Testament. I've often said that wherever you are in the Scriptures, God expects you to bring with you what he already said. And the fact is that you have this body of remarkable truth and revelation, which is the Old Testament, and God's intent is that is that we understand the later revelation in terms of the earlier. Now, I think, without a doubt, the basic, simple gospel and the truth of the New Testament and Christian living, I'm not saying that you have to do some... Uh, real deep and careful and extensive study of the Old Testament before you can get anywhere in your Christian life. But as you get deeper into the Scriptures, and I think especially as you struggle to understand some of those uh, 
some of those uh, weightier and meatier matters of the law and so on, that uh, it's going to be terribly important to bring the Old Testament with you. Uh, I sat under a theology prof who said that every single thought and idea and concept in the New Testament, except one, has a root in the Old Testament. Now, that one to which he was referring is the church. The church was a mystery, hitherto unrevealed. But but whether it's uh, the way words are used, the illustration I've often used is uh, uh, in the Old Testament. Well, let me say it this way. Uh, it's, I'm persuaded that the New Testament writers spoke in Greek but thought in Hebrew. And their, their, their thought forms and even sometimes the way they express themselves are based upon the way the Old Testament thinks and so on. That is the way Old Testament thinkers thought. And the illustration I've used is the, uh, is the prophetic perfect. In the Old Testament, you have this thing in Hebrew that is in the Hebrew tongue called prophetic perfect, which simply means that when God tells the future, he does it in the past tense. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's expressed in the Hebrew, and that reflects the Hebrew as if it had already happened. In fact, it's future because again and again, well, matter of fact, almost without exception, I don't know of an exception, there may be some, but when God tells the future, he does it with a tense in the Hebrew, it's not exactly a tense, but a state of being uh, a verb, which speaks of that which is already accomplished. And the thought is that even though it's in the future, God said it's going to happen, so you can consider it done. It is as good as done. Now, on the other hand, the, the, the Greek has a very, very clear future tense. And yet Paul will say things like this. He has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Or he has made us to sit together with him in heavenly places. Well, I think that's the prophetic perfect in, you know, in a Greek speaker. He's using... You know the the uh, and and we come along and we assign a sort of a platonic thing about uh, you know positional versus conditional truth. I think Paul would have stumbled over that. You know, I think he's just trying to say it's done. It's as good as done. You know, he has already translated. We're not in the kingdom, but he's translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. So there are any number of ways and figures and so on, and one could go on and on at some length. Let me just say this though: I think there are any number of reasons why it is imperative for a Christian to learn to think, a New Testament Christian, to learn to think in terms of Old Testament reality and thought and concepts and emphases. But I like to say, and I'll just say this quickly, that, that the most important is this, that there is uh, the grand distinctive in my mind of the New Covenant experience. And I believe we are, we are New Covenant believers. We Jesus gave us the New Covenant I don't believe it's fully uh, ratified. I think there is a sense in which it's going to be made with Israel, but certainly we are beneficiaries of the new covenant uh, uh, which is in place in the blood of Christ. But my point is this, that I think the grand distinctive of the new covenant experience, that is, if you if you ask the question, what's the distinction between the experience of the Old Testament saint and the experience of the New Testament saint, the most important element of that distinction is intimacy that you and I enjoy an intimacy on this side of the cross that the Old Testament saint would have been offended to hear you talk about. I mean, I don't think the Old Testament saint could consciously think of God as his personal father. But we think of him as Papa. You know, we're crying out, Abba, Father. I mean, that's that to an Old Testament saint, his blood would curdle to hear you talk that way, you know. 
And I think, again, it's a function of the finished work and the once-for-all sacrifice and the uh, new and living way and the veil being rent in two and we're invited to come. I mean, just that thought, you know, that, that we're invited to come boldly before the throne of grace. The throne of grace is the, is the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the, 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 the Shekinah glory dwelt, you know. It's where the high priest went on one day a year after seven days of preparation with great trepidation. We're just supposed to wander in there any old time. I mean, that's... The kind of, I say wander in there, I don't want to be flipped, that's what I'm getting after here. But it's that level of intimacy, that measure of intimacy, that is the grand distinctive of the new covenant. Now here's my point, that along with that measure of intimacy goes a besetting sin, and I think that besetting sin is carelessness and flippancy about the character and the majesty and the nature of the God with whom we've been invited to have that measure of intimate relationship and and God only gave us one cure for that one antidote and that's the Old Testament so you saturate your soul spirit with the spirit of the Psalms and you go with the prophets as they stagger before God and his you know his holy throne room and so on and you, you even trace his hand and his mighty acts and so on in the Old Testament and I believe God wants us to do that to discipline our spirits to remember the kind of God it is who invites us to that intimate relationship. So just on a dozen different counts. I mean, Jesus told us to search the scriptures and, you know, he's, he's thinking of the script, the Old Testament. But I think Christians today uh, need to be, we all need to be carefully reminded of the majesty of the God whom we serve. And I think that the Old Testament celebrates that in a way that was designed to prepare us for the intimacy that we enjoy under the new covenant. Does that make sense? Well, Dr. Bookman, um, just wanted to ask you a question now that pertains to the law. One of the hot topics today between uh, reform, those of a reform perspective and uh, dispensationalists is uh, the place that the law, the Old Testament law, has in the life of the believer. So the question before the house uh, tonight is, are we still under the law or are we not under the law? Well, I believe we are entirely delivered from the law by the one who came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, I know that there's a great deal of discussion specifically about our relationship to the Ten Commandments. And I think you've got to understand that those commandments are part of the law system. There is no sense in which I I think any part of the law system, that's, you know, what happens is this, that in the progress of God's dealings with mankind, he makes a, re- a covenant relationship with a man, Abraham, and then with his clan, and then with his, uh, his people. And then he brings that people under Moses to Mount Sinai and offers them a, uh, a relationship by which they will become the nation over whom he is king. That's what's going on at Mount Sinai. He is offering them the theocratic relationship. You know, they will be a kingdom with a priestly function, and he will be their king. They will be in a special, unique way, a way no other people ever enjoyed. Ami, my people. Well, in order, once they have accepted that, well, really in offering them that covenant. Exodus 19, God gets them there to Mount Sinai, offers them that covenant relationship. They say all that Yahweh has said we will do, but... But God is not interested in a, in a small print contract, if you know what I mean. He, he wants them to know exactly what it is they're signing, what kind of God it is that they're going to serve. And so he gives them what we remember as the book of the covenant, Exodus 19 to 23, or Exodus 20 to 23, actually, where he, 
he spells out in sort of summary fashion the kind of law system to which they're going to ask that God is going to demand that they subject themselves. Because remember in chapter 24 then, after they've read the book of the covenant, once again they say, you're going to do this, and they say, all that the Lord has said we will do, and it's then that Moses cuts the covenant and sprinkles the blood, and the covenant is actually formed. So my point is that the law, now there's a lot more law. You go through the rest of Exodus, and it's almost all part of the law, and then all Leviticus, and then of course all, and then Numbers 10, and then, number, and then the book of Deuteronomy. All of that is the great law system, with all of its statutes and demands and requirements and punishments and so on. But the moral component of that is the Ten Commandments. And it's a part of the law. Now, my point, and, and not only was it raw, it wasn't just raw thou shalt and thou shalt nots. There were specific uh, judgments and punishments that had to ensue if you broke these things and so on. So I maintain, and I think this is the standard, if you don't mind, dispensationalist. I know that word has fallen out of fashion just a little bit. But, but dispensationalism simply honors the fact that God reveals himself progressively. I always tell people, you didn't take to a, a goat to church with you, right? Proves you're a dispensationalist, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, at this level, that there was a stage. The word dispensation, by the way, means stewardship, and the idea is there are, there are discernible stewardships of truth in the Scripture. God gives revelation, and men are required to function as a steward of that revelation. And then in the course of time, God might give more revelation, and your stewardship is somehow changed and matured. But at that stage, from Moses to Jesus, men lived under this law system. And the law system was God's means of, of, of administering his covenant people and enabling them to be the sort of testimony, the kingdom with a priestly function, that he had raised them up to be, Exodus 19.6. And so it's my persuasion that the Ten Commandments must be understood as part of the, uh, that law system, and all of that law system was fulfilled in Jesus, and it has, we are no longer under the law, Galatians 3. Now, is there a sense in which, A, the moral realities are still incumbent upon us? Yeah, God didn't have to, in the days of Moses, sit in some celestial rock and decide whether it would be wrong to lie or not. You know, I mean, all of these things reflect his character. Uh, the, the, and so, and all of them, as you know, except for the, uh, the the Sabbath commandment, are repeated in the New Testament, and and many of them even antedate. I mean, clearly, the, the giving of the law. So, the point is not that beginning with Moses, it was wrong to lie, or it was wrong to steal, or it was wrong to uh, commit adultery. The point is that at that point, he codified, in the most strict sense, as part of an overarching system of, of uh, law by which he would govern the, the, his covenant people, these, uh, these commandments. Now, the one that's the most problematic for us, if, you, if, you, if, if we're asking the question, what do they have for us today, clearly is the Shabbat, the Sabbath. It's interesting and, and underappreciated that Exodus 31 makes the point that the Sabbath is the seal of the Mosaic covenant. Every covenant has a seal. And the seal is something that's designed to be part of just the normal part, the business of life, whether it's the rainbow for the Noahic or the circumcising the male sons with the Abrahamic or the Lord's Supper with the New Covenant. You know, I think the table of, of uh, you know, the Lord's Supper is the New Covenant. Well, the, the seal of the Mosaic Covenant is Shabbat. So when you rigorously keep the Sabbath, 
you are swearing allegiance to the Mosaic Covenant. Well, we don't want to be doing that. I mean, we understand that we worship Jesus. We believe that he is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe that, as I say, as he said long ago, that he is the, you know, he came to fulfill the law, that all that the law anticipated was fulfilled in him, and and therefore, as Paul says, we're no longer under the law. So, uh, again, I don't have, I don't think there's any particular difficulty in, in, in just affirming that on the one hand, that system of ten very, very rigorous and deliberate laws was part of the broader moral codified laws, was part of the broader uh, law system that God had uh, put in place for the governance of Israel. All of the moral requirements were true before and after, but in no sense are we under obligation to uh, keep the commandments as part of that law system. And so we're not under obligation to the seventh day. We worship on Sunday. We worship on the first day. I think there are some principles that are resident in the idea of one day and seven that we can learn from and profit from. But that wasn't, God wasn't saying, you know, I'd like you to just take a day off and get a little rest. He was saying, well, the seventh day, you do no work and you honor me and it's part of the law. I don't think we're under that. But again, I don't think, and nobody would say to be sure that simply because to say, that to say that we're no longer under the Ten Commandments means we can go out and violate all those. But, but I think as they are part of the broader law system, which has been fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we are no longer bound uh, to, 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 uh, to those commandments. As you're saying, if as New Covenant believers, if the law doesn't apply to us, how do we think about Israel today? I mean, are they still under the law? Um, have they rejected the Messiah so that they're not even part of the picture? How should we think about Israel today? Well, that's an interesting question. And in the first place, I do believe that, uh, uh, as God said, that his covenants that he made with Israel are absolutely irrevocable in that, uh, uh, to be sure, Romans 9 to 11 deliberates the issue of uh, where Israel stands in God's plan today. And I think it makes the point that, A, Israel has been set aside. The natural branch has been broken off, and it's a result of a rebellion and disbelief. But B, and these are so big, these points that Paul makes in those three chapters, which I take to be the centerpiece of the book, not some sort of an add-on. That really is uh, the centerpiece of the book. But the, he, he makes the point that Israel has been set aside, but he goes on to argue both historically and theologically that they have been set aside, number one, judicially. And by that I mean that it's perfectly just. The God-made covenant and in that covenant, he promised a blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. And God's a God who keeps covenant. And Israel uh, disobeyed by, by rejecting her Messiah. And as a result, uh, she has been set aside judicially. God is perfectly just. He's not, he's not uh, been careless about his promise. He's not compromised his character. He's been consistent with his promise and his character. But the point is that not only is Israel's setting aside judicial, but it's also temporary. And that's so huge. The natural branch is going to be grafted in again. And that's not so much about God being good to Israel as it is about God being true to his own character and his own word. And he made that promise. Now, two things about it real quickly. Number one, this is, this is a 
sort of an idiosyncratic passion that I have, but I think, yeah, one of many, I confess. (laughs) But I think Esther is in the Bible where it is for a very good reason. You know, just at that time when the theocracy is about to be abandoned, the Shekinah glory is about to leave, uh, just at that point in, in the history of Israel where God is going to put Israel under the heel of Gentile dominion for, for a time and so on. Uh, and, and most importantly, the glory cloud is about to leave in the theocratic relationship. Now, not the, the covenant relationship. That's timeless. But, you know, God became king in Israel in 1446 in response to Israel's acceptance of the Mosaic Covenant, as we talked about before. But King Yahweh departed, Ezekiel 8, 10, and 11, remember, when the, in 592 B.C., and that's the end of the theocracy. And, and the interesting thing is that God continues to work in Israel's life and existence, of course, I mean, national life after that, but he does it without miracles. You don't see miracles. And then you have this remarkable book, Esther, which celebrates God's capacity to, to preserve Israel without any miracles, working behind the scenes. I mean, here's this Gentile monarch who can't sleep one night, and it eventuates in the, in, in the rescue of the entire Jewish nation. Uh, I mean, Esther is, is, is everybody's favorite narrative in the Old Testament. It's just such a remarkable narrative. But think about what's going on there. God is proving himself capable of watching over Israel even during that time when, by reason of her rebellion, she is ever more uh, set aside. And I think she is still under that, under that, she, she still is set aside, clearly. So I always say this, and maybe I'm the only guy in the world who would see any sense in this. But if the question before the house is, should New Testament, New Covenant believers uh, love Israel, anticipate God restoring Israel, and so on, I think that same question can be asked another way. If you were alive in the days of Esther, would you have been on Esther's side or Haman's side? You know what I'm saying? Because I think that that what he's saying there is even though I am not going to intervene miraculously, I'm not going to take my hand off of Israel. And again, I want to go back to it, that all of that has to do not with, with Israel being such a swell people that God just can't stand, you know, not to love them, for heaven's sake. You go back to Deuteronomy 7, that very, very seminal passage where God is deliberating the question why he chose Israel. And he says, I didn't choose you. I didn't love you because you were greater than the other nations, but because I loved you. The reason I love you is because I loved you. You can never get beyond that. But there's never any motive or any merit in us that motivates God's love, or it wouldn't be the kind of love God loves you with. And, and so, but my point is the real issue at stake is is God's character, his name. He has made a promise. And by reason of Israel's rejection, they have been set aside in fulfillment of that dark side of the covenant promises. If you, if you disobey, there will be a curse. But God is not done with Israel. He demonstrated it in Esther in that remarkable story of providential preservation. And then you trace all the centuries since, all the ages since the days of Jesus, these 2,000 years, where Israel has been so set upon. And, and, and you read some of the absolutely remarkable strokes of providence 
hinges of history. There's a historian by the name of Barbara Tuckman who was very Jewish and actually was a uh, not all that distant uh, descendant, I think great-great-granddaughter or something, of one of the primary architects of the uh, Balfour Declaration and so on. But she she has a book called The Bible and the Sword in which she traces, from an unbelieving standpoint, I mean unbelieving from a Christian standpoint, she's very, she has a great deal of animus toward, toward Christians, but she just traces the uh, the ways in which again and again in the most unlikely, I mean the fact that when Israel announced that she was a nation, she was so dependent upon somebody embracing her. And uh, every one of the cabinet members in, in Harry Truman's cabinet uh, warned him not to do it, and a couple of them resigned when he did do it. And the only reason he did it is because when he was a haberdasher back in Missouri, the guy he worked alongside of was Jewish. And, you know, he just always felt like he always felt bad for that fellow's people, you know. And, and just all of these remarkable strokes of, of, of providence, which just are, are, are God kind of living out the, the book of Esther. You know, the 1967 Six Day War, she says, I was reading in Tuckman, this great tank battle where, where these, the, the, you know, the Israeli tanks against the tanks of five Arab countries and so on, and the Arab tanks are all latest model and so on, and, you know, supplied by the Russians in that day, and, 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 and the, uh, Israeli tanks were all worn out, refurbished Sherman tanks from the Second World War, but it, and just nobody planned it this way. But those Sherman tanks could depress their turrets about three or four degrees further than, than the MiG tanks, and they were fighting on the Sinai and these swales, you know, and so the MiG tanks, in order to shoot at you, would have to get right up on top of the hill, or they're almost like a shooting gallery, you know, where the where the Russian, the the, the Israeli tanks could stay down behind the the backside of the hill and get their turret down enough to shoot at the enemy. And she says Israel survived because of those three or four degrees in the turret on those tanks. You know, nobody planned it that way. Right. Well, I should, somebody did plan it that way. But, you know. And it's it's one stroke of providence like that after another that uh, that I think. So so that wasn't exactly the question was uh, how should we feel? I think we should we should realize that the Jewish people number one have had and will have a very special relationship with God, and God used them. And in so many profound ways, we are their spiritual dependents and ancestors, and we stand on their shoulders, uh, but on, not ancestors, uh, descendants. But on the other hand, uh, uh, they have been set aside. And uh, now I will say one other thing here, real quickly. <laughs> one of the one of the preaching points that I like to make is that shortly, about three, about about six weeks before the triumphal entry, Jesus was confronted by some Pharisees over in Perea. And they were trying to get him to come back, Luke 13, 34, and 35, to uh, try to get him back into Judea where they could do him damage. And, and he said, you'll not see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Had you been there that day, you'd have thought that's not going to happen. Those are very powerful Pharisees, Sanhedrinists. And they, they... But some weeks later, he rode into the city and he choreographed it. He made it happen, but he, the city cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Tuesday, Matthew 23 and verse 38, on Tuesday as he left the city, that's Tuesday of the Passion Week, he looked back on it and he said, you'll not see me again till you say, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. And I always say the big difference between those two passages is one's been fulfilled, the other one hasn't. And you look at the Jewish people today and how hard and how determined they are, it seems, as a people not to accept Messiah. And you wonder, how is it that these people are going to cry out, blessed is you who comes in the name of God knows how to get that done. 
And there's going to be a uh, period of terror on earth, which is going to bring Israel. The only reason you're a believer and I'm a believer tonight is God has brought us to the end of ourselves, and God's going to bring Israel to the end of herself. And 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 when Israel looks upon the one whom they once pierced, and God pours out a spirit of grace and supplication, and in Paul's delightful, albeit enigmatic phrase, "All Israel shall be saved." What what what? The, the universe of, of, of men and angels is not going to rejoice over Israel finally getting saved. They're going to rejoice over God's character and his, his, his determination to be true to his character, true to his word, and get done what he's promised to do. And he's going to do it with Israel. Well, Doug, you had mentioned that, that Jesus had intentionally kind of brought about um, the triumphal entry. Can you take us through maybe the overall, you know, Piece by piece, blow by blow of uh, the Passion Week. I'd love to do it. Uh, it's uh, as we sit here. It is Good Friday, and we're about to go into a Good Friday service. So it's appropriate that we do it, and it's always appropriate for a Christian's mind to be to be focused on on the events of the Passion. Uh, we, the word Passion actually comes out of the Old King James in uh, Acts chapter one, where Paul, uh, Luke says that Jesus showed himself alive after his Passion. But the word has come to be sort of in, in, in English uh, usage. It's, it's, it's taken to be a reference to Jesus, the events of Jesus, the entire week that culminated in Jesus' uh, crucifixion on Friday and then resurrection on Sunday. Uh, I always say that in order to understand the, uh, the Passion Week, you have to go back to the raising of Lazarus, which took place several weeks earlier. Because after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it says he goes to a little village called Ephraim and uh, tarries there. And it says that the Pharisees took counsel to put him to death and sent out word that if anybody knew where he was, that they should tell the Sanhedrinists so they could arrest him. So after the raising of Lazarus in John 11, which as I say happens just two or three weeks earlier, maybe four or five, Jesus is a fugitive. He's on the run. He goes up to a little village called Ephraim. John also says that after Lazarus was raised and dead, Jesus became the subject of every conversation, and the people in Jerusalem were standing around wondering whether he was going to come to the feast. And as I say, he had told those Pharisees some weeks earlier that he wouldn't come to the, fe- they wouldn't come to the city until they welcomed him uh, with the 118th Psalm, the, uh, the Hallel Psalm. Well, Luke 17 says, verse 11, that Jesus left Ephraim and went north. He was just nor- Ephraim is just a little village just north of Jerusalem, but uh, as he sets out, he's got Jerusalem in the rearview mirror because he goes up through Samaria. And Jesus, having been raised in Galilee, knew that it was the protocol for large groups of Jews to make their way down the Rift Valley. And so he goes in and falls in with one of them, makes about a two-week trip down toward Jerusalem along the way doing miracles. This is when he heals the ten lepers. This is when he heals blind Bartimaeus. And he's challenging the fair. There's a lot of excitement. And then the Bible says in John 12 that six days before the Passover, which is Friday night, Jesus stopped in Bethany and let the great crowd, probably three, 400 people with whom he'd been traveling, go on into the city. Well, as they went into the city, uh, remember everybody in the city was wondering, is he going to come? And now you, you've got the answer, but you know something else, I'm convinced, because Jesus very publicly went to Bethany, and Bethany is just outside the Sabbath zone and he went there on Friday afternoon, six days before the Passover, John 12, verse 1. So, because he was outside the Sabbath zone, once the sun went down, he couldn't come into the city. And so, uh, I believe uh, he had very deliberately 
alerted the city that he was coming and that he would be there on Sunday morning. And so now they have the whole day to, to, to anticipate, and on Sunday morning the whole city comes out and throws down their garments, and you have the triumphal entry, which was deliberately and carefully and really with tremendous cleverness uh, orchestrated by Jesus. And it was thus because that was the day upon which he most officially offered himself to Israel as Messiah. I believe it was the day that fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel 9, that there would be 483 years from a certain decree to restore the city on to Messiah the Prince. Well, at any rate, I always say that once you you read about and trace the events of the, of, of the triumphal entry, you wonder, well, given Sunday, why Friday? The fact that they were all welcome, uh, anxious to welcome and, and receive Miss King on, on Sunday, why not, you know, why by Friday are they crying for his crucifixion? And again, if the answer, if, if the question is given Sunday, why Friday, the answer is Monday and Tuesday, because on Monday Jesus returns, cleanses the temple, takes possession of the temple, acts more messianically than ever else in his ministry, and, and in the most dramatic and compelling ways, he demonstrates the fact that if you are going to receive him, you're going to receive him not just as a deliverer from Rome, but as he demands to be and as the Messiah picture is drawn in the Old Testament as delivered from sin. And the issue was that Israel, it was Passover, they were tired of Rome, he had claimed to be Messiah, and a few weeks ago he rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. That, 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 you know, I always think if you had to go into battle against a hideous enemy, it'd be a bit of an encouragement <laughs> to follow somebody who could raise you from the dead, you know, but, but, uh, so they were anxious for him to deliver him from Rome, that's what they meant when they said, save now, Hoshana, but in fact, uh, he demanded that they accept him as a deliverer from sin. And I always say the great lesson of Monday and Tuesday, and it's an important lesson, is Jesus genuinely, longingly offers himself to us, but you don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. And and his terms are you acknowledge you have no other hope. Uh, there's only one who can crush the head of the tempter and deliver from sin and death, and that's the, the promised seed, that one who came into the world born of a woman. Well, at any rate, that was Monday and Tuesday. Tuesday night, Judas sneaks off to the Sanhedrin and makes a bargain to betray Jesus. Wednesday is not mentioned in the record, but it must have been a busy day because Judas was making preparation. Judas had been hired specifically to, to help the Sanhedrinists arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. Jesus was a master at covering himself by the popularity of the multitude. And... Uh, Judas knew that the next time Jesus would be alone would, would be when they, when they gathered for the Passover. But Jesus was careful to keep that secret from him. So on Thursday afternoon, Jesus takes the disciples to a place where Peter and John had been sent earlier with a secret signal where the room had been arranged. And Thursday night I like to think of as a night of messianic preparation. I should have used my outline. Sunday, the day of the triumphal entry, is a day of messianic presentation. He offers himself to Israel. Monday and Tuesday, I like to think of his days of messianic proclamation because he proclaims the truth concerning who he is and what it is he demands that you accept if you're going to accept him. And then he kind of leaves the city of Jerusalem with the decision. Then on Thursday, he takes his disciples to the upper room and he spends some time preparing them. He keeps the Passover. He announces that the betrayers at the table, Judas makes an excuse and leaves to fetch the Sanhedrinists and the soldiers Jesus 
when Judas leaves, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And he begins to prepare them for his death once again. John 14.31, right in the middle, he says, Get up, let's leave. And so they make their way across the city. He knows that Judas will know where he's gone. But he wants a few extra minutes, so he makes his way to Gethsemane, and there Jesus prepares himself. That's why it's a, an, an evening of messianic preparation, first of all, of, a, of the eleven, for the fact that he was soon to die, and then of his own soul spirit as he goes and, and uh, thrusts himself before the Father. And three times he begs the Father to uh, find another way, but uh, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But he always says, not my will, but thine might be done. So according to Luke uh, 22, with angelic help, he gets up off the ground and staggers out. And as he leaves the garden and uh, the soldiers are there to arrest him, he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup? Remember, he'd prayed three times, let this cup have not my will, but thine be done. And he says, I'm going to drink that cup. And so he's arrested there on Friday night. And of course, Sunday, I'm sorry, Friday is a day of messianic perfection because, in fact, by 9 o'clock in the morning after a series of trials, first of all before the Jewish Sanhedrin and then before a very, very reluctant Pilate who didn't want to crucify him, but uh, turned him over to be crucified when the Jews threatened to go to Caesar. And so Jesus is on the cross by about 9 o'clock in the morning. And there are three hours of daylight and then the, there's a darkness drawn against over that scene by, by, by the Father. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's suffering spiritual death there. He's being disfellowshipped by the Father. And we don't know what that means, but it certainly represents an infinity of suffering. And and then finally, as the day... Well, it's interesting because there were so many... This would take a long time to explain, but because there were so many lambs that had to be slain at Passover, the rabbis had contrived to have two days of Passover slaying, one for the Galileans, the non-Judeans, I should say, and then one for the Judeans. And so Jesus indeed kept the Passover the night before, and the Passover lamb, his Passover lamb, had been slain on our Thursday. But now it's Friday. And uh, by reason of that protocol, just as the horn is sounded, and once again, about 3 o'clock, the Bible says they have to be slain between the evenings. And so when the sun gets past its apex in the afternoon, the Passover lambs are slain. They be, that, that, that process begins. And that would have been just about 3 o'clock. So just as the uh, Passover lambs are being slain in the temple, Jesus uh, cries out, it is finished, and then gives up the ghost. He's laid in a borrowed tomb, and of course, and on the third day, some women go to complete the uh, preparation of the body for burial and find that the stone had been rolled away and the body wasn't there. And the angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So you have that marvelous, marvelous Easter story. I call it a day of messianic pronouncement because he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It's a marvelous, marvelous drama and uh, it's good to think through it regularly, but this is the season of the year when we do it. Amen. Well, the last thing for you, Dr. Bookman, uh, could you suggest some Old Testament resources, books that would help deepen our understanding? Well, this is what I tell people. Number one, in order to come to grips with the Old Testament, in order to really make the Old Testament, you know, and, and Gary, the thing is, too, that it's, 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 it's foreign territory. We feel much more at home. And, and well, we might. It's the New Covenant is the New Testament. That's another word for covenant. That's New Covenant literature. 
The Old Testament is literature that God gave for living under the Old Covenant. But it's, it's worth the effort. And I maintain that, number one, you need to get your arms around the narrative. You ought to be able to walk through the narrative almost intuitively. And, uh, and that's the fun part. That's the flannel graph part, you know. And, and uh, so you ought to spend, and, 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 and the thing about it is there are some, some, I think, really handy resources. And the guy that I think is most helpful guy is my great mentor, Gene Merrill, Eugene Merrill, and he wrote a book called A Survey of Old Testament History. It's been used forever, and it's very, very good. He once told me that he had written that book as a rather young professor and was uh, impressed with the fact that he, even though he, he understood old Jewish history, Israel's history, he didn't understand the history of the peoples around him. So he's going to spend 20 years studying the broader Middle Eastern history and then rewrite that book, which he did. And the book that he then wrote was called Kingdom of Priests, and it's his magnum opus. And and it's 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 it can be a little technical though he divides it out and every thinking Christian layman can handle that book and and would be well advised I think to have it. Now the other thing I maintain is that what happens is as you are reading in the Old Testament, this I think more than much more than the New Testament, the tendency of, of, of Christians is to is to come to this or that pretty regularly, some reference and say, I don't know what that means. Someday I'll figure it out. And I always say, make this the day. Get yourself a little <laughs> library. Have have a, an atlas so you can understand something of the geography. Have a uh, have a Bible dictionary so you can look these things up. And just, you know, if you have to read smaller sections of the Old Testament, get a good study Bible. Because a study Bible can be very, very helpful in this regard. And because there are cultural and historical and linguistic and geographical things that are foreign to us. But they're all they're not that the gap is not that wide and we can you can bridge the gap so i just think it's wise to have a, a small uh a small library of uh, resources that you use by the way you can do this on the internet now too you know you can find so many a lot of them shareware wow that you can you know and just have it at your hand and as you're reading you know you can get to it very very quickly and then of course the other thing is sooner or later Every Christian ought to get himself to Israel, right? Because it's so <laughs> helpful. And I believe um, we might do it from this church one of these yeah, days. So. Yeah, <laughs> that soon, right? That's right. So We've been promising. So. That's right. Well, Dr. Doug Bookman, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, it's a privilege for us to hear from your wisdom, from uh, the depth of your knowledge. It's always an encouragement for us on behalf of Gary Takahashi, myself, um, and IBC. We thank you. You're welcome. Lord bless you. That concludes our session today at IBC Topics. We hope and pray that you are blessed by this interview. Until next time, may the grace of Jesus Christ be with you all. Oh